Hello and welcome to this episode of the Total Water Polo podcast. I'm really delighted today to say that we are joined by the man leading the world's biggest water polo federation. Uh, it's the CEO of the United States Water Polo Federation, Chris Ramsey. Chris, how are you? Welcome. I'm well, glad to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, uh, we, we're really great, uh, grateful that you are giving up your time to be here. Uh, we've got so much to talk about. Um, I think we'll start, though, with your introduction into the sport and how you got involved in the United States water polo world. Well, when I was growing up in Southern California, uh, I played water polo in high school. I played in college. Or I played in those days. This was in the early 70s. It was called AAU, Amateur Athletic Union, water polo. So I used to play in the old Coliseum pool. Actually, my coach in those days was Nick Martin, who was the captain of the 56 Hungary team. And he ended up settling in California, Pasadena, near where I'm the board of Pasadena, near where I lived. And so I had to take advantage of that. Then uh, my life moved on. I actually was in England for a year of study and I ended up doing uh, uh, my master's degree at Cornell and taught there uh, in English literature and poetry, of all things. And stayed in New York and got married, have kids, uh, moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. And while we were uh, doing that and setting up my life for my kids, one of the things that they had there was a sail and swim club. So we joined that and they had a, this thing called the Fairfield County Summer League. And my kids signed up for swimming and they signed up for water polo. And then I started voluntarily coaching, you know, like getting Dan Wood. And I got involved because of that. And what happened was USA Water Polo back in the day, had really come in under some really difficult financial circumstances and essentially went bankrupt. And this was about 2005, 2006. So they chose to overhaul their governance structure so that that couldn't happen again. They brought in a more smaller board, more corporate-oriented board. And that group hired me at the end of 2006 as the CEO. And uh, for my sins, I guess I'm still there. Yeah. And you just said there that there were huge financial problems. Can you talk a little bit about your experience where you were working before you arrived as, as the CEO? Yeah, it's probably not a normal path for water polo, but um, for about a dozen years before that, I was one of the uh, chief executives at the New York City Ballet yes. at Lincoln Center. So it might seem counterintuitive, but dancers are athletes. Uh, on top of that, it's, a, it's an international business. Uh, one of the things that, in recognizing the failures that USA Water Polo had undergone, they realized that they had very few revenue streams. So a lot of my experience at the ballet was creating philanthropic revenue streams, sponsorship revenue streams, building the base of the audience, things like that. And so the people who hired me on the board recognize that those those experiences would be valuable and try to figure out a different way to chart a course for USA Water Polo going forward. Yeah, and, and you joined uh, the Federation. Um, and what did that Federation look like at the time in terms of the number of employees and, and the budget constraints that you had? I would say it was about a three and a half million dollar budget at the time. And it was about, I don't know, 15 employees, including the coaching staffs for the two national teams. Mm -hmm. uh, at the yeah, and how many people does that have to encompass, though? Because three and a half million, um, maybe some countries in Europe, sounds like 
a, a decent amount, but we're talking how many athletes are we talking? How many members uh, across the country? At that time, it was about 24,000 members. And a lot of revenue from our operation comes from membership. Mm-hmm. It is a lot. So, it, yeah, I mean, you can argue it both ways, I guess, in terms of whether it's a lot of money or a little money. We don't get any money from the government mm-hmm. in the U.S. So that's one thing that's very different. We do get some money from the U.S. Olympic Committee that comes from their sponsorship contracts. But it's in those days, if you want to think about it like a pie chart, there were really only two significant pieces of, of the pie. One was membership revenue and the other was revenue from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, and we spent in those days where USA Water Polo spent probably two or three times more on its national teams that it received from the United States Olympic Committee. And obviously that was one of the challenges uh-huh. uh, because the members, although they do produce revenue, there was also a lot of dissatisfaction because they felt that they should be getting more for their membership fees than they were get- yeah. Huh. yeah, And they were not happy with the idea that that money was going to subsidize the national team programs. So over time, is what, over time, one of my goals was to take the revenue that came in through membership and invest it in membership programs and find other ways to make the national team revenue whole without having to essentially tax work. That's really interesting. And I maybe want to uh, dive into that a little bit more about the sort of things that you did to improve uh, the circumstances for the members. You have a really tough task of balancing the books. Um, what 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 sort of things did you uh, did you improve for the members? What kind of programs did you have? Well, I think one of the first things I recognized was that we have a, a little tournament called Junior Olympics. Yep. And I realized those days we had about 120 teams that participated in it. And I had because I was living on the East Coast. I had this perspective of not being in the uh, the California water polo via Sephora, of really kind of feeling like you were out on an island and there wasn't a lot of competition and it was hard to find places to play. So going to California for Junior Olympics in those days was a big expense. And then your teams went off and lose three games and then be relegated to a loser's bracket and that was it. And so that created also a lot of dissatisfaction. So what I recognized was Junior Olympics was a really valuable property, but the way to recognize its value was that we had to invest in it. And I give you a few numbers to give you an example. I said about 120 teams. Last year, uh, 2022, we had 940 teams in Junior Olympics. Three sessions, two in California, one in Texas that's more of festival that you can sign up for earlier. Um, we had about 24,000 members, I told you when I came, uh, this year we had almost 50,000 paid members, which is probably the highest number of paid members we've had in our history. And this year we're already tracking to increase that number. We're running 12% ahead mm-hmm. of, of where we were last year. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge increase. And, uh, we know California is the epicenter for water polo and maybe your experience being on the East coast, um, maybe allowed you to give a bit of a different perspective and not being inside that California bubble. In recent times, we've seen that water polo is now a high school sport in Texas, uh, a huge market, a huge uh, state. But what are your plans and the Federation's plans to deliver water polo to uh, its outreach to further around the country? Uh, we have a mission statement, you can see water polo, and it's 
to win medals in international competition and to grow the sport. So when I got there, I was trying to figure out how to grow the sport. One, Junior Olympics appealed to me because I recognized the value of it, and I recognized that the more that we could grow that, that would be something that would impact virtually all of our membership. Um, it would give clubs a way to sort of center their competition year uh, with that as kind of the climax of the year. And so that made a lot of sense to me, and that was one of the first investments that we made. And incidentally, just to drop another statistic by you, I think currently our growth rate is like 14% outside of California and maybe only 1% or 2% within California at the moment. And that has to do somewhat with saturation. There are only so many facilities. Yeah. And one of the things that we recognized is that water cola's facility is based. I mean, you can't play it if you don't have pools. We were talking before we started the interview about the problems in England not having enough high-level competition pools, that really curtails growth. So we made a decision specifically to go into Texas seven years ago. We put a full-time person there. We lobbied the UIL. We, and one of the most successful parts of the Texas partnership was we lobbied the swim coaches. And what we learned was that the swim coaches were only paid half the school year for coaching the swim team. So we convinced them that if they supported water polo, they could get paid for the other half of the year to do water polo, and they endorsed it. But it took seven years from the time that we started making that investment for it to pay off and get adoption, and then to actually start. And as an example, I mean, I always talk about Texas as kind of dropping a uh, aircraft carrier in the middle of the Yacht Harbor, is we had 200 teams, roughly, that signed on in the first year of this past fall, mm-hmm. to schools, 400 tapes, mm-hmm. 200 men, 200 women, yeah. basically. And our federation, I mean, we have about 400 clubs. So if you think about adding what maybe another couple of hundred clubs through this process, it just vastly changes the equation, the growth yeah. in the country. And we made the decision after Franklin making some mistakes. We initially kind of tried to grow everywhere. We thought to ourselves, oh, you know, it's like there are all these interesting markets, but we spread ourselves too thin. Mm. So we made the decision after about five or six years of that road to mass and say everything that we were going to do for growth, we were going to put into Texas. We would hold international tournaments there. We would host new competitions there. And we would go until we really had success in that market. Now that we've done that, we're not leaving it because there's obviously a lot of work to do. There's a lot of coach education, a lot of referee education that has to happen. But we also now are saying to ourselves, okay, what's the next market Mm -hmm. that we're going to go in? So the Texas model is almost a blueprint, I think, for you guys uh, to go to the next location. And where might that be, do you think? New Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. On the the east side. Okay. Nice. Nice. And obviously, uh, Texas was host to uh, a quite a nice tournament over the new year uh, with the with the national teams uh, coming there and the national team is something I want to talk about now uh, we'll start with the men uh, it's pretty obvious to everyone that there is a very clear policy coach Dan has has enforced uh, that he wants his players and he's been very clear he wants them to come to Europe play professionally and and get the experience there was that a, a joint decision is is that something that you encourage I encourage it because I think the best professional leagues in the world are in Europe and if you want to be the best, you have to play with the best. So 
I do encourage it from that point of view. Uh, and I think the women's model and the men's model are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at our last really successful men's team, it was really the 2008 group. And they have really been prepped a great deal by Radko Rudik. And it was the same thing. Radko had them also plenty in Europe. And even if you go back to the 80s teams, you know, people like Terry Schroeder and Craig Wilson, they played in Europe. So I think there's a clear correlation there. Challenge for us when we first started, uh, when I first started, it was that the economic situation in Europe was such that they were hiring a lot of American players and there were a lot of opportunities and it was sort of a large dry spell, but it's come around. And also, obviously, people want to hire players that are going to be successful for them and now we'll be getting to fair help. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's something you endorsed. But is it a problem when it comes to training with the national team? Um, if you're sending your uh, a lot of your top players uh, away to Europe, uh, the other side of the world in some ways? I think not just for us, but in a broad sense, for everyone in the world of water polo, the calendar is a problem. I think, you know, in the U.S., we have the NC2A season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have guys and, and some women playing professionally in Europe. We have the World Aquatics calendar. Uh, there are the professional club calendars, and there's the amateur club calendars. And frankly, those things are not really, in my view, that well-coordinated. Uh, we have had a lot of frustrations trying to get comp- get competitions that involve our collegiate athletes at times when our collegiate athletes can participate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of this is Europe is a robust, mature system with its calendar. So it, my general impression is they feel they shouldn't have to change uh, because they're sort of at the top of the heap. But honestly, I think we're a small sport in the larger scope of things. And I think we all need to cooperate more. And when I came to USA Water Polo, I, I had a saying, which was that we have to stop fighting over scraps uh, because the pie was very small. The way to make the pie bigger is to collaborate and work together. And I think we've done that to some degree in the U.S. I think we need to do that on a more international scale with all of our partners because if we want to protect our position in the Olympic movement, we need to continue to bring more countries into the water polo family that want to compete. And in order to do that, we need to understand the true international calendar. It can't just be one continent's calendar. Yeah. And I've, I'm hopeful that we can do that, that it's been a problem so far. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree. Uh, collaboration is, is what's needed. But what would, what would maybe a calendar or, that would benefit the men in America? I know the collegiate system is maybe from uh, September through to December. What would, what would you propose uh, to, to be the calendar? Part of the challenge with calendar is some of it's of our own making. Uh, it probably would be better for us competitively to have the men playing in the winter, spring, than in the hearing fall. But to get the NC2A and all CIF and all of the different school authorities that run, because we run through an academic model in the U.S., that's very difficult to have them change. They, universities think differently about time and about their own model. And I think that's, well, frankly, been one of our impediments on the men's side to improve it. Uh, just frankly, men are playing professionally here from the age of 15, 16, 
in the U.S., they kind of take a break when they go to college. And then if they're still motivated at 21, 22, when they finish, or 23, you look at the best teams in the world and the gold medal winning teams, their average age is 28, 29. <laughs> so we need to keep that going, but we also need more high-level games. And that's why I do endorse the guys playing in Europe. Now, we can turn that thought on its head when you think about the women, because I think the NC2A program for the women is one of the strongest programs in the world as a league, if you think about it that way. And so our women get a tremendous benefit from that. I think more and more women from around the world are coming and playing at the collegiate level because it's so strong. So we get a lot of benefits on the women's side from that academic competition model. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a different philosophy in the U.S. I think if you go back and look at just the Ivy League schools, for example, they all have a lot of sports because they recognize that sports create leadership and that if you combine that with a strong academic experience, that you get something that translates into high business achievers. And so that's kind of a secret sauce in America. But the calendar piece, I mean, I'm not being critical of other countries because we really haven't entirely solved it in the United States. Uh, what I think it, we have to do in order to really address these things is sit down together and also ask ourselves what it is we're trying to achieve. Because it's a lot of the focus is on improving competitive performance. And we like to win medals as much as the next country. But really, the core of our belief in growing the sport is to build the bottom of the pyramid, is to create more club opportunities, to create, we create in splash ball, to create more opportunities for very young children to have an experience, and then something that will lead them into trying out different sports, but ultimately getting more of them into water polo. Um, I mean, you look at it like kitty kick soccer, you look at little league, you look at these other sports, they all, we're competing with all of them. But when kids get in and play water polo, they love it. So part of our philosophy is just get them in the pool at a very young age and focus on making it fun for them. And the rest will start to take care of itself if you do that. And that's been a big focus. Yeah, yeah, definitely building from, from the bottom up. Um, you spoke earlier about the membership change uh, over your time uh, as CEO, and you've just spoken there about like splash ball and getting the juniors in a grass level. Um, do you have any information, or any data on the demographics of, of how the USA is, is, is moving forward in that capacity? Have you got more young kids starting at an earlier age or anything? Yeah, our highest levels of growth are at 10 and under and 12 and under. So our youngest and splash ball is a 10 and under kind of incorporates that. So that is where we're seeing a lot of growth. And if you look at clubs, for example, as a business model, we have more than 400 of them. What we've tried to help our clubs understand is that although being competitive at a high level, Junior Olympics or um, pipeline team programs is great, but really what pays the rent is to build a community-based program that has broad participation. And that is the most successful the model for the most successful clubs in the U.S. for doing that. And, you know, we have clubs like Stanford and Balabarinda and SoCal, they have, you know, four to 600 members. It's a lot. Yeah. But 
that's also what partly was Fuel Junior Olympics, growing to almost a thousand teams, is that they need a place for have high level competition on their calendar to go. Mm-hmm. And and speaking of of high level competition, we know in America that the the high level competition revolves around the collegiate system, and um, maybe there isn't uh, as much big emphasis on uh, a professional league. Can you uh, maybe go into some detail about? Uh, the current state of, or, or any talks about a professional league in America? Well, I think it's, you know, it's definitely on our to-do list. Uh, it might be more of a semi-professional league initially. We're trying to finish up getting a new national stadium and facility built where we could do it. One of the challenges of the way water polo runs now is it's this movable feast idea of you're going to go to a pool and you're going to bring in a bunch of TV cameras for the, a tournament and then you're going to take them down. That's really expensive. And from, um, from our point of view, it would be much smarter to build a terrific stadium, put in all of the technical uh, and recording and media equipment that you need to really do a high-level performance, but leave it there so that anytime you would do anything there, you have all of the electronics or the control rooms and everything in place. And I think for a professional league in the U.S. or a semi-pro league, we need to have that in place. We need to have... we. One of the things we don't think about as much in water polo, I think generally, uh, my colleagues would share this, is really thinking about where the great venues are that people are going to want to go and that people get associated with the sport of water polo. Now, we have Marguerite Island in Hubbard. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. But if you look at Great sports properties like the Masters in golf. Yeah. We all know it's in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. Right. And that it's a beautiful place for golf. You're there at a perfect time of the year. The Ironman Triathlon, why? Mm-hmm. It's an incredible place to be. I think we also can think more carefully about where we hold events. I mean, one of the challenges of the Junior Olympics when I came is they used to bid it out all around the country. Uh, and they had had tried it in Florida, in Michigan, in different places. Our approach was to say, no, let's figure out where the best facilities and the best experience for people who are going to travel there to participate in are going to be, and then let's consistently hold it. In our case, we flip-flopped set, uh, the Bay San Francisco Bay Area and Southern California, and now we've added Texas. But let's do it where people are familiar when they go the next year, they've been around the block, they know what it's like. Maybe it's the place where they can have a vacation with their family after the mm-hmm. tournament. Mm-hmm. But let's set this up in some place that is going to be a really great travel experience as well. Because we sort of learned it's having Junior Olympics in different places, sort of like FIDA now World Aquatics and move tournaments around, it doesn't really lead to building up. Mm-hmm. Those here. Is there a plan then? Is there is there somewhere that you you would would say that you want to build a pool and, and create a, create a well, I think We want to build a pool now. We have a partner in the city of Irvine who would like to build a facility in the city of Irvine, and we have land set aside and funding. So ideally, that will get completed before the LA twenty games. Okay, and if I may ask, um, obviously this is we're talking about a lot of money potentially involved with with building pools and all the infrastructure. Um, are there sponsors lined up? Are there, are there any? The whole private partnership with the city of Irvine, they uh, have a park that was an old military base that they're turning into a park. 
and they've created a mechanism for funding the activities to go into the park. And one of the things they need to put in is an aquatic center anyway. We have raised $12 million ourselves to put toward this so that for any of the, what I would call exclusive use areas, like our national team locker rooms, engage rooms, and things like that, we're paying for the construction of that. And we're also paying for our usage in the facility so that the city doesn't have to feel they're overly subsidizing us. But the reality is the city gets a better facility than they would otherwise have, yeah. along with our Olympic participation, and we get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And going back um, to what we were talking about originally that started this uh, this conversation, in terms of a professional league, would, would the blueprint be that um, there'd be a professional league maybe that played their, all their games there on TV, uh, live coverage? That would be the game plan. Yeah, and we have to figure out who can essentially sponsor or operate those teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another piece of this puzzle. But we're a little bit away from that right now. I think for the for the time being, we've got to focus ourselves on continuing to build the club network, making sure that Texas really expands properly. I mean, it's 200 high schools just starting in September. It could be 400 within five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think that Texas is going to continue to fuel the growth out of California uh, for other markets, and we're going to see growth at all of those markets as well. So it, it's a bit of a balancing act because we're not just doing one thing. We're trying to do three or four things at the same time. Mm-hmm. I know in your previous roles that you uh, you had a lot of expertise in things like marketing and communications, and it, it sounds like you have a, have a clear vision uh, for where you want the, the sport to go in, in your country. Um, what's your view on the current market and the opportunities uh, for water polo, not only in the U.S., but around the world? Well, I think the sport brings families together in a very special way. I mean, I can speak for myself. I have three sons. They all played, uh, they played fairly high levels. But during what I would call the sort of challenging teen years, we were all at it together. We went to games together. We talked in the car about their experiences and what they were feeling. Um, you know, we went through those discussions of do they want to keep doing it or do they want to quit? Um, but it was we did it as a family, and it really brought us together. I think water polo is an incredibly value valuable community tool, and it's incredibly valuable to families, especially during those teen years. A lot of sports, well, for example, here's a stat. In the United States, 70% of the youth sport participants quit by the age of 13. And they quit, the number one reason, because it isn't fun any. So there's a lot of emphasis in the U.S. on specialization and on turning professional and getting the lottery ticket to be an NBA or an NFL dar. And obviously, almost no one ever reaches that level. My view, um, we asked about my view, my view is stop chasing, you know, the golden ticket of that. And instead, recognize what sport does for leadership, for family, for community, and invest in those things. We'll have the best athletes will rise to the top, mm-hmm. but it will broaden the base of the sport. It will connect more people and more relationships within the sport, and that will lead to inexorable growth which will mean more facilities, more opportunities, and lead to still more growth. Kind of like 
you know, the, uh, the metaphor of the flywheel, once you, it's been very hard, but once the flywheel starts to move, it begins to throw off its own energy. And I, I think that's just a critical piece for us in the sport internationally. We, we all need to invest in the youth and the younger people and the families. That's really what makes it do. What's, what's the USA's relationship with World Aquatics and how much do they support what you're doing? And, and have they offered a, any support uh, to, to make these programs and you know, your ideas come to fruition? Well, there's obviously been a lot of change at World Aquatics recently. You had an entrenched leadership for a long time that had, that I don't know that we did always see eye to eye. I think the new leadership has got a lot of really interesting ideas. I think they're struggling with some of the that are legit things that are legitimate challenges. Okay, um, swimming produces revenue. Diving may produce a little revenue. Water polo doesn't produce revenue for them. Uh, things like artistic swimming do not produce revenue for them. So I think they're trying to figure out what the model looks like and what their role going forward is. And because all of us are businesses, we tend to look and focus on the revenue piece of it. But I actually think one of the things that World Aquatics can do, and I hope they'll invest in more, is the education and the seeding of more competitions, especially water polo, getting more countries to compete and try to get into the Olympics. There are a lot of countries, there are a lot of sports right now. Cricket, um, uh, was the other big one, it was lacrosse, that are spending a lot of money to try to get into the Olympic Games. With the 10,500 cap of athletes in the summer games, you can't add sports without taking sports out. And I think if water polo doesn't continue to grow its base and be adopted in more countries, we will be vulnerable to being picked up by, uh, moved out for another sport that has more opportunity and is also, frankly, maybe a better financial investment. So I don't view that as an immediate threat. But if water polo and world aquatics and all of us don't work together, I think it is a longer term. And, and in short, how catastrophic would that be for the sport if uh, our Olympic races would be shareable? Uh, I think we, all of us, have been in a little bit of a rut with water polo and a little bit of feeling of entitlement because of our Olympic heritage. And also because, let's face it, you've got to be a little crazy to love water polo. And you're deeply passionate about it. And we all sort of live in this bubble of how much we care about the sport. But when you walk outside the doors of, of water polo, the rest of the world isn't getting that message and they're not connected. And we are right now in one of the most competitive environments you could possibly imagine for people's attention. It is not just sports. It's media. It's social media. There's all kinds of things competing for people's attention. So I really believe we have to sharpen the value proposition of what water polo brings, and we have to go out and seek and speak to not the people who are already in the sport, but the people who have never thought about the sport before. We need to be recruiting more of those. We need to give our clubs more tools to bring more people in, to sample the sport, to try it out. Nobody in America, I feel, should end up having gone through their educational life without at least having tried water polo. But the reality is in countries all over the world, a lot of people never tried it. They're never exposed to it. 
So I think one of the first things that we all have to do is figure out how to broaden exposure to the sport, how to get more kids and families to sample it when they're young, because ultimately some percentage of those will continue to play. And if we can broaden the number of people that want to play it, get more facilities built, that's going to help us cement our role. Uh, and talking about the Olympics, we've obviously got one ne next year and then we're, we're all heading to, uh, to LA for the Olympics. I'm sure you're very excited about that. As, as we've spoken uh, already in this chat, um, to, to, to make improvements, it takes a long time. You spoke about Texas. It took seven years before we get to the stage now where there's, you're doubling your clubs, uh, really. Um, for, from your point of view and maybe from the men's national team, um, what what is the priority for them at this stage? If you had to prioritize one, is Paris there ahead of LA, or or would you be willing to maybe uh, maybe put aside Paris and and focus totally on LA? Um, I think our our road goes through Paris, it goes through Qatar, it goes through uh, Fukuoka. Uh, we need high level competition. It's only going to make us better by the time we get to LA. One of the things I also think sometimes we miss in water polo is that our, the competition and the people that we compete against in our adversaries make us better. And so we're bound to them in a really important way. Uh, both of our programs need high-level competition to be ready in Los Angeles. But honestly, every that's the thing about sport. Every day when you wake up, you're only as good as your next game. And I think if you look at Look, our women's programs obviously had maybe more than its share of success. Uh, our men's program is really solidified as one of the top programs in the world. And I'm really interested to see over the next 18 months how they perform. Mm -hmm. and, and you spoke about the women's side there, one of the most successful teams in, in the history of, of the sport. Um, uh, they've been really, really impressive. Are there lessons that can be learned uh, from the way that the women conduct themselves and, and are they doing the same sort of things as the men? Uh, but they're obviously achieving gold medals. Um, are there any lessons that the men's team or the men's setup can learn from the women's? Yeah, work really hard. <laughs> work really hard. The, the women have more of a domestic training model mm -hmm. uh, and the men obviously are using the European training model. So they are different. And it's, you can't necessarily um, crisscross some of the lessons from one program to the other program. I will say one thing that I did when I came in was there was a lot of competition uh, among the two programs for resources. And I just made a decision that we, I was going to give both teams an equal opportunity to succeed. So, you know, depending on the year, there are times when one or both of the programs are upset with me because they feel like maybe there are more competitions they want to attend and they need more resources, that they're capped because it's they're basically getting the same amount of resources with each program. Uh, look, I think our men have learned a lot from our women. They've learned a lot about professionalism, class, uh, cutting down distractions not getting upset in competitions, but just also being able to play different styles uh, from game to game. Uh, because we know officiating changes, depending on who the officials are, sometimes you need to be able to adjust. Uh, but I think the, the professionalism that our women bring to every game, their attention to detail. I mean, Adam Krikorian and his group had done a phenomenal job 
And honestly, it's just an honor to be able to help try to support them and give them the opportunity to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, but I do think the men have learned a lot. And I think part of, part of sports is competition. And, you know, I have to be honest with you. I'm sure the men think all the time about, wow, the women are so successful. How can we be that successful? <laughs> uh, even though the model's different. So that healthy competition between both programs is a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And um, in, term, in terms of globally speaking, some of, some of the biggest names and the biggest followings and the most commercial athletes in water polo are, are from the, the women's national team. I, I would say, you know, we're talking about Maggie Steffens or Ashley Johnson. Uh, you know, uh, in the past, there's been, there's been so many. They've won medals, and um, I, I think we're seeing that they are, they are true role, role models for a lot of young athletes in America and outside America. Have you seen firsthand what a big impact it, it has when you do win a medal and, and you're so successful? Well, I guess I'd parse that a little bit. The medals are great. And I view the medals, frankly, as a symptom of the culture. So we're successful because of the way we go about things. I have absolutely seen the impact of, frankly, both the men and the women and what I would call high character with the way that they approach their job as players um, and the way they approach the sport. Uh, you know, growing from 24 to 50,000 members, that's not a small number. And I really believe the character and the culture of the sport are what have driven that more than anybody chasing gold medals. Gold medals... And, you know, in the guy's case, they won silver in 08 and they won some silvers in the, uh, the worldly competitions. Uh, they validate that we're serious and that we know we're doing it. But I really believe having the connection of, you know, where did these athletes come from? What's their local club? Having pride in that and giving back. Going, the athletes go back to those clubs and they still work with the young kids. That, it's that stuff that really makes a difference in terms of growth and in terms of expansion of the program. Because once you're exposed to quality, and I think I really probably learned this at New York City Ballet or maybe even at my McNeil Lear days of journalism, once you're exposed to quality, you want quality. And you begin when you begin to understand what quality is, you don't want to settle it. And so what we tried to do is give our teams and our clubs the resources to be able to really do something of quality and recognizing that that quality is a huge factor in attracting people. For sure. Just before we finish uh, this, this chat, what's the one thing you're most proud of uh, from your time with as the CEO of the USA Woods Powder Federation? I think, frankly, being able to create a viable business model. So I told you I came, it was about a three and a half million dollar a year operation. This, we just concluded 2022, it was 16 million. Now, obviously, how you spend that money counts. But being able to create a lot of different revenue streams that touch sponsorship events, philanthropic giving, um, creating a model where we can grow and we have a platform to do these things, that's what I'm proud of. The, the revenue and the being self-sufficient. Yeah, and creating, creating a business model that really serves 
we're a federation, so I would say it serves our members. Um, we put out a better product in almost every regard, and that's what has led to our success. Nice. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it was a great talk, and thank you for everyone for tuning in to this podcast episode with uh, Chris Ramsey. And just before we leave you, just a reminder that you are entitled to a 10% discount at Wear Water Polo by heading over to our website, wearwaterpolo.com, entering discount code PODCAST10. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider subscribing, rating our show, reviewing wherever you're receiving this podcast. And make sure you follow all of our social media channels to stay up to date with all the water polo news of the day. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Total Water Polo Podcast.